Welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2014, volume 52, number two. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, I'm editor-in-chief. We start this month with an editorial highlighting some of the issues associated with changes in drug prices in primary care. Some of these changes result from supply problems, others from something known as the Category M pricing scheme. But I just wondered, James, what sort of problems do these price changes cause? Well, I mean, it's an interesting situation, isn't it? Because what we've got is a completely um, artificial market created by the government in an attempt to be able to fund pharmacy in a different way. So people with long memories will remember this sort of Category M business came along in 2005 and they said, let's take some of the money away from the cost of drugs and then allow us to use that money to fund pharmacies. So Category M drugs are meant to be very easy available generics that are very cheap and what's happened unfortunately is that that very cost reduction has led to a lot of providers finding they can possibly export the generic to another country and get more money that way. So what's happened is we have a situation now where the price can fluctuate enormously for Category M drugs. And, and the particular issue we highlight here is the fact that something that has been £1 a month for several months suddenly shoots up in price several fold, so it ends up being £10, £20 a month for the same drug, causing a huge fluctuation in the impact on the, the CCG or the, or the area. Uh, Absolutely right. When we give an example of sertraline where the drug has risen sixfold over 2013, and of course that can um, have an impact of anything up to a quarter of a million pounds on the prices over three to four months. So the question then is, of course, if you are a CCG who are looking to be as efficient as you can with your drug costs, do you tell your GPs or your prescribers, well, we think you should perhaps do something else for the time being? And, of course, that has huge implications for the patients and from pharmacy, particularly moving from one brand or from a generic to a branded generic and back again. So I guess that raises two issues. One is, for new patients, do you start them on something that's now cheaper, but then run the risk that that price may go up? Or secondly, for patients who are stable on something, do you change them away from what they're settled on? That's right. And of course, I think patients are the first to complain when every time they pick up their drugs from the pharmacy, they find it's a different box and perhaps even a different name or perhaps even a different style inside the pack. And I think that for us, there's a real worry that that has an impact on prescribing, has an impact perhaps on errors, because perhaps as a patient, you get so used to the fact that your drugs seem to change shape every month that you don't recognise when actually you've been misprescribed, perhaps. So clearly, just chasing the price probably isn't the only factor we should be taking into account. Definitely. I think that's our, that's our, our stand in this, is that we feel that it's a very dangerous game to be switching drugs around every month just to try and catch the cheapest. So probably better ways to save your money if you need to. Indeed. Okay, thank you. Um, first main article this month is looking at interactions with herbal medicines and trying to give a bit of an overview of the potential problems you can encounter when patients might take a herbal remedy alongside a conventional medicine. Is this something that we, we generally need to worry about? Oh, definitely. And I think, of course, the problem we have with herbal medicines is they can be 
invisible to us as prescribers. Very often, I think, patients don't recognise that what they're taking is a herbal remedy. So, for example, they might go to the pharmacy and be worried about having a cold, and they might weigh up taking something like vitamin C with echinacea. Now, the patient might not sort of think that one is a vitamin and one is a herbal. They might just think both of them are alternative options for me to try. So they may be totally unaware that actually what they're taking is a herbal remedy. And when they go to their GP, they may be unaware that that may have implications on the drug that he's about to use. And do you find that patients voluntarily offer the information that they're taking something else other than No, they don't. You have to ask. And I say even then, sometimes they won't necessarily know. They'll say, well, I'm taking something to stop me getting a cold. And they're not sure whether it's a vitamin or whether it's a mineral like zinc or whether it's actually a herbal. And of course, sometimes it's all three. So if we've got this potential problem, we've got a market of, of herbal products. Is anything out there to help us? Is anything changing in the regulation of herbal medicines that might help us with with this? There are a number of changes that have occurred over the last, well, coming up to a decade now. It was totally unregulated until recently. And then in 2005, the MHRA launched the traditional herbal medicine registration scheme. And this was a principle that if you'd had a herbal remedy that had been out there for many, many years, and there was sort of a tradition, if you like, that it was used for certain things, even if there was no proof that it worked or didn't work for that condition, you could get a THA, a traditional herbal medicine registration for that. You can also, if you like, with a herbal remedy, get a full marketing authorization. So the classic example of those two would be, um, let me think. Something like Senna. Exactly. Senna and Ispacuala Husk. Those are two classic herbal remedies that have got a full marketing authorization. So we've now got a situation that really by this May, May 2014, any herbal remedies will either have to have full marketing authorization or they'll have to have this THR unless, and this is the little bit of small print, unless they're prescribed and prepared by an individual practitioner in herbal medicine for an individual patient. So they will still sit outside that. But it does mean at least there will be some standardization of what patients are taking. So that'll be good. Doesn't mean there's some standardization of what's in the herbal remedy. So you might pick up St. John's wort from uh, three different manufacturers and the content of that St. John's wort might be hugely variable. But at least you'll know there's St. John's wort in each of those preparations. And presumably that if a product's gone down the route of a full product license, we know from the regulatory process they will have to describe drug interactions. Whereas if it is a THR, then there may be little evidence for herbal interactions. That's correct. Um, the THR does ask them to produce a, a summary of product characteristics. And if there has been published evidence of interactions, that'll be in it. But of course, it could be you know, extremely variable about what sort of evidence you might find there. And that's because it is incredibly difficult to do this work. There's some quite clever um, techniques we discuss in the paper around how in vitro studies are used. And interestingly enough, sertraline is a drug that's often used to test if herbal remedies have an impact um, or might have an impact in real life, if you like. So there are things we can we can hint at and we can work at. And there are certain drugs which we should be particularly 
anxious about using in patients who are using herbal remedies. So what, what the article tries to do then is give people an overview of the limitations of the evidence. Precisely. But some pointers as to what... Yeah, and I think there are some really good practical help for prescribers out there and pharmacists to, to put a handle on this. Good, thank you. And our second article is a review of a uh, not a new product, a new combination of two existing drugs uh, that are used for treating allergic rhinitis. Dimista, which was launched last year, uh, is a combination product containing the antihistamine azelastine and the corticosteroid fluticasone. What are the sort of issues we raise in this article, James? As you state, the first thing that we raise, of course, is this is not actually a new drug. It's a new combination, but it's not a new drug. The two drugs have been around now for many years. And Dimister is an attempt to provide a single nasal spray for patients uh, that combines these two well-used products. And in terms of the evidence base, have we got an extensive set of clinical trials? No, not, I wouldn't call it extensive. We have obviously the trials they use for the marketing purposes, but unfortunately they are pretty scant. I mean, we're talking about studies that lasted three or four weeks with just a week lead in using a placebo and then perhaps two weeks of using the drug. So these aren't like so many drugs um, or so many formulations of drugs that come onto the market. The initial studies often are very short. And in terms of comparators, were they reasonable choices? Well, once again, I must admit, I, I was disappointed with this because, of course, if you've got a new preparation that is a combination of two drugs, you'd like to think that what they would test it against would be two drugs. If not those two exact drugs, then perhaps a combination of two drugs that are commonly used. But in fact, what they did was they compared dimister with each of the individual components and demonstrated perhaps not unsurprisingly that the combination of the two was better than each individual on its own so in terms of getting a bottom line we obviously need to read the read the full article it might help people to draw a conclusion as to how valid the evidence is in making a prescribing choice absolutely i think that's right and i think and i think like all these things often the the drug's um, fanfare needs to be looked at closely with the evidence that we supply and just get an idea of really what's going on. So check the advertising claims closely with the evidence. Indeed, exactly right. Right, and finally, um, just picking up one item from our select section, uh, one aspect that we've talked about is a review of a BMJ paper looking at the problem of sodium content in some well-used medicines what are the key issues? I really like this paper. I, I love papers that answer a question and they actually answer it. So, so many papers just give you more questions. But this one actually is a really nice paper. Um, it was They used clinical practice research data. So they simply sucked data out of practices and um, looked at 1.2 million patients worth of data. And they compared patients who were taking at least two prescriptions for sodium-containing formulations between 1987 and 2010. And what they found was that patients who were taking high sodium content drugs had a higher risk of uh, stroke and, in fact, a sevenfold increased risk of hypertension and an increased risk of all-cause mortality. So it's observational stuff? Exactly. This is not causal. This is an observational study that simply said... And, of course, you quite rightly might say, well, hang on a minute. If you've got patients who can't take tablets because they're sick and therefore they're having a dispersible preparation, 
you might expect them to be given to the most poorly population, and therefore you can understand why all-cause mortality might be higher in that group. Uh, but it doesn't really explain the sevenfold increased risk of hypertension. Salt is still an incredibly controversial area, but I, for one, have always tried to avoid using effervescent preparations, particularly paracetamol and cocodamol in my patients, because these patients are often taking these for long, long periods of time at high doses. And this is a, an article which does demonstrate that there may be some associations with that. And are these significant amounts of sodium within these medicines? Well, yes. I mean, these patients, the mean sodium consumption uh, in patients on these drugs was 107 millimoles per day. Now, you'll all be rushing off to remind yourself what 107 millimoles per day is, but that's about 2.4 grams of sodium or about six grams of salt. So and about your current daily it recommendation? It is. It's what the Food Standard Agency currently recommends as uh, the maximum. So you could have your whole requirement, daily requirement of sodium in your medicines. Precisely, yes, before you even started on the chips and beans. And anything we should, or clinicians should take away from this? Is there anything practical they can do as a result of this? Well, I think there is, because I think um, this, is a, this is a really good example of where you can take something you've learned in a paper and actually apply it to your work. So, you know, it'd be very simple to do a review of patients who are taking effervescent paracetamol or codeine um, and you know look at those patients and perhaps ask yourself do they really need to be on the effervescent type I mean certainly in my practice when we did this we found that most patients on them had just migrated to them for some reason and were taking other tablet formulations every day normally and it was a very simple thing to switch them from the effervescent to the standard. So good opportunity to review patients and where possible move them away. Precisely. If you actually set some standards and go back and do it again in six months' time, you have a complete audit trail. And of course, as far as your appraisal is concerned, because you can demonstrate that it's had an impact on patient care, you can double your points. Excellent. Thank you very much. <laughs>